0: This episode is brought to you by Deborah Singapore, a support group for patients living with congenital epidermolysis bullosa, a rare skin condition that in its most severe forms affects all of the body's linings, the skin, the lines of the mouth and esophagus, and even the eyes. Deborah proudly addresses the medical and psychosocial needs of those affected by EB in the near complete absence of support from government healthcare systems. You can play a part by either making a donation at www.DebraSingapore.com or get in touch with them to help raise awareness of the condition or any other aid you would like to offer. You can write DeborahSingapore Singapore at Debra at Gmail for more information. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our wonderful patrons for making this show possible. If you enjoy the Coffee and Cocktails podcast, feel free to support our show by becoming a patron for as little as one pound per month. By subscribing to our show, you not only get early access to ad free episodes and bonus content. But you also receive bi-monthly patron-only content, including monthly video interviews and a chance to talk with our coolest guest speakers. To learn more, just head over to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast and subscribe today. Otherwise, we'd like to give a shout out to our newest patrons and Gold Star members, Mary M, Maj, Sitna, Helen, Nouveau, Andrea, and Meishuan. It's contributions like yours that really help to keep the show going. I'd also like to remind our listeners that we are looking for a few more guest speakers for our upcoming history series on controversies and contraband starting this summer. If you think that might be you, shoot us a line at coffeeandcocktailspodcast.com. Hello and welcome to the 27th episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Anne Wand. This month on our Inspiring Women series, we have the pleasure of talking with our final guest speaker, president of Debra Singapore and rare disease policy advocate from Asia Pacific in Singapore, Dr. Ritu Jen. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Anne, for having me. It's a true honor. And I look forward to chatting with you today. Absolutely. I was going
0: to say, as per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you were having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Ritu, would you like to start?
1: Sure. I am right now having uh, milk tea with ginger, cinnamon, and cardamom. Oh, wow. Quite unlike the tea that my father would prefer as a tea planter himself, uh, having spent my entire life in the tea plantation, or rather the better part of my life. Um, Yeah, so this is a real departure, and I'm sure my father would be cringing at the thought of this. Really? Why is that? (laughs) Well, this is not real tea. You know, it's not the tea seat in uh, hot water and a drop of milk on the side. No sugar, of course. The right temperature covered with the tea cozy and the works.
0: Oh, it sounds like my (laughs) (laughs) mother-in-law.
1: She's very particular. Yes, absolutely. As is my father, my parents actually. So this is a real departure. But for a sore throat, yeah. With a no, bit of definitely. a itchy throat, I prefer the ginger, cinnamon, cardamom concoction. Oh, that sounds so that's wonderful. what I'm having. Oh Thanks. well that sounds delightful.
0: Maybe I should have some of that after I've the coffee's <laughs> settled in. <laughs> the yes, eye twitches and- have gone away. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I was gonna say, um, you and I have been talking about all sorts of material that we'd like to cover in this episode. And I think you and I both quickly realized that um, the issues surrounding disability awareness, and you can tell us a bit more about that in terms of the work that you do, could easily turn into a podcast on its own. But before I dive into some of our questions, could you just sort of tell us a bit about uh, your, sort of the work that you do and the charity work that you do and um, the sort of projects that you're working on.
1: Thank you, Ellen. So I have a daughter uh, who has a rare genetic skin disorder. And while we've lived with that since she was born 21 years ago, as well as actually my husband's, uh, from whom she inherited the condition, we've never really thought about it until a few years ago when I um, got in touch with some researchers in Singapore clinicians and researchers who told me about something called patient support organizations and how uh, we could set up uh, the Singapore chapter of a global rare disease organization called DEBRA or the Dystrophic Epidermolysis Bullosa Research Association. A bit of a mouthful. In short, the condition is EB and the organization that supports people who live with this condition around the world is DEBRA. And so I set up the Singapore chapter uh, to support the patients, people, families in Singapore as well. And started a lot of work in the region supporting patients um, who didn't have really a network. So we're trying to put them together, create networks so that they can support each other, identify and connect them with clinicians who could also support them because rare conditions by the very nature are so rare that often um, a GP or even a specialist rarely sees someone with a particular condition. So there is very limited lack of expertise, knowledge, um, and uh, centers of excellence or even clinical care for people living with rare diseases. And uh, to continue that work, well, I joined Deborah International, the Global Alliance, and then went on to work with Rare Diseases International, which is the International Rare Disease Alliance speaking for all rare conditions across the world. And uh, since 2018, I have also been heading the Asia-Pacific Alliance of Rare Disease Organizations, or APADO, but I stopped in January because the work got just a bit too much. Oh, before I forget, I also have another life in which I'm a sociolinguist and an academic at one of our universities in Singapore, uh, which is called Nanyang Technological University. So basically, you are a very busy woman. (laughs) Absolutely. I am. (laughs) What with research, publications, and I'm so pleased to share this baby that just got Came oh, into my hands day before yesterday. My first edited volume called oh, Multilingual Singapore.
0: Multilingual Singapore. And let's read the whole title so that our listeners know. So it's called Multilingual Singapore Language Policies and Linguistic Realities, edited by Ritu Chen. Oh,
1: excellent. That is good to know. Thank you for sharing Thank that. You. Yeah. So it's been, it's it's very busy, yeah. Uh, with, what with publications and research and rare disease organizations and of course, family. And sleep. So, Don't forget sleep. uh, (laughs) Some of it, yes. Uh, We we give up on television and Netflix and we manage.
0: I bet you do. Well, I was going to say for the purposes of this episode, um, I thought we'd talk about what it means to have a visible versus an invisible disability and how people with disabilities navigate their lives both socially and within their working environment, which leads me to my first question Ritu, can you tell the listeners what the difference is between a visible disability versus an invisible one?
1: Well, and this is a question that I have been mulling over for quite a while. And as I work more and more in the area of uh, rare diseases, I realize that people who live with these conditions are often doubly disadvantaged One, by the fact that they were born with this condition. Most rare conditions are genetic in nature. And uh, so they're born with this condition. And second is they suffer from a huge level of stigma and discrimination from society, which further marginalizes them. So in a way, our ignorance and our fear and our uh, prejudice, maybe perceptions, lead to society invisibilizing people with disabilities. Often, I won't even say disability, with conditions, rare conditions. So I don't like to use the word disability because it um, pigeonholes people, it labels people. And the minute you think of disability, what's the first thing you think of when you think disability? Um, hindrance, I think. Hindrance, okay. Visible uh, In terms of uh, visual symbol, can you think of one word when you think of disability?
0: I think it depends on the disability. I mean, I think if I had to pick one, I'd pick a wheelchair. Yeah. Like if exactly. I had to pick an image. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. So that's what most people, I think, uh, come up with, a wheelchair. And unfortunately, even the symbols we use globally, for example, you know, a person who needs um, a special parking space, a closer a parking space, would have that wheelchair symbol on the windshield, you know, to access that space. But often people with conditions can't lead normal lives or what we consider normal, yet they aren't disabled, really. They simply have conditions that are, that they don't wear on their sleeves, that are not visible to us, that are not apparent to us. Take my daughter, for example. Her condition, thankfully, is a very mild form of EB, which means that it impacts her only in areas where there is consistent friction. For example, walking leads to blistering of the soles of her feet. And writing a lot with a pen or pencil leads to blistering of her uh, different parts of her fingers and her palms. But if you see her, she looks perfect, absolutely normal. And yet she can't go to, let's say, Disney World. Because if she walks around for about half an hour, she starts to blister, and she can no longer walk. So, what happens when you go to a theme park and you see somebody uh, rolling up in a wheelchair to the head of the queue, and then standing up and getting into a roller coaster? It makes you mad that you know this person's taking advantage, uh, or you know this is just um, is a perfectly normal person. You can't see a disability, but the truth is that it's there. You simply can't see it. That doesn't mean. Um, So when we judge people, when we look at them with those accusing eyes or um, our prejudices, we do them a disservice. That's Mm. what I meant by something that's visible and something that's invisible, but obviously there.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's a really good description. Um, Yeah. And I like how you said that you would prefer to use the word conditions. Because I think, you know, when I think about my own condition as an epileptic and it wasn't something that I was born with, um, I know that my, there were some relatives that weren't totally happy with, I think they had a hard time accepting that I had epilepsy and they didn't want to admit that this was like finite. This is, this is my life now. Um, And I think, I don't know if it was maybe just the acceptance of dealing with trauma or what have you, but I noticed that I was probably the first or if not one of the first to really accept it. And it took a couple years, I think, for other people to kind of get on board. Um, and maybe, and I'm sure there's a lot of psychological reasons for that, but um, I think that that's interesting, some of the things that you you point out. Um, I was gonna ask you as well. So um, you also provide awareness for those with, uh, what is called orphan con- dis- what well, we should call them conditions I suppose orphan conditions Can you explain to us what you mean by this?
1: Sure. Um, would you mind if I addressed what you said? Uh, while sure, I- go ahead. Yep. Yeah. So you would t- you can probably edit this out, but you were saying it was difficult for your relatives to accept that you had a condition, right? Yes. Yes. So Anne, when you talk about you having epilepsy and realizing at some stage that this is going to be part of your life uh, in the foreseeable future, you said that it was difficult for some relatives to accept that. Well, I see that again and again, particularly with conditions that are acquired rather than uh, conditions that one is born with because parents almost, uh, often parents anticipate these conditions like I anticipated knowing that my husband has a rare condition, I anticipated that my children might have it. But when, uh, it's easier, I guess, to accept a condition that one is born with, but when one acquires it, there's a greater degree of rejection or lack of acceptance. And I see that perhaps it's parents who find it more difficult, immediate family, those who love you, and, I don't know. I don't know really how one can help, but I think communication between various members of the family is very important. But when it comes to something that one is born with, I think that also makes it very difficult for immediate family to accept or acknowledge because there's an additional burden of guilt that you Mm. passed it down to your child, that you other cause. And uh, I mean, I went through that a lot. I still go through that, that I am responsible for my child's pain. So instead, I think that is something that communication really addresses. And my daughter tells me that I'm nuts, that, you know, it's she's perfectly able to manage her life. She doesn't want the pity, she doesn't want the sympathy, she doesn't want the guilt. Mm. She accepts this as a part of her identity. So acceptance and communication are perhaps really critical in dealing first with a condition.
0: No, and I think that that's a really good point. And I know um, we'll probably talk about this more a bit later, but about how um, identity really plays a major factor. I mean, when I when I think of my identity, you know, my epilepsy is a item that I work around, um, but I don't wake up. Every morning and go. Hi, I'm an epileptic. Like I don't, you know, I don't think about it in that way. I just know that I need to take my levetiracetam in the morning and in the evening, and then we go about my day. And then I have a coffee, and that's it. You know, and as long as I've got my medication, then I can function, and that's and that's a good thing. So part of your identity. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, I was Um, going to one more question. Sure, it's about the visibility. So I'll start again. And I know that you're supposed to be asking me questions, but I'm curious about this whole notion of visibility. Mm. Since you have epilepsy, this is quite an invisible condition. No one can find out or no one can see that you have epilepsy. So how does that impact you? Does it mean your life is easier in in sort of letting um, that people can ignore the fact when they see you, they don't see see your condition, they just see Anne rather than Anne who has epilepsy?
0: I think so. Um, I mean, I wear a medical bracelet, but what I think is interesting is that nobody notices. Um, uh, to be fair, I deliberately tried to find the prettiest one I could find because they're usually really ugly. Um, but yeah, it, it was, it's definitely a shock. So I, I don't just have epilepsy, I also have a heart condition. So I get, you know, double the fun. And I found out I had a heart condition uh, when I was starting field work back in 2011. I was in Germany. I was feeling not very good. um, And I had taken some terrible medical advice that had said, well, if you're not feeling good, you should go for a jog. And I did. And I promptly fell on my face. Um, My face. I've been in Germany for three days and didn't speak any German at all. And long story short, found myself in an emergency vehicle. Some lovely people in the street saw me faint. I lost my front teeth. I ended up in hospital. It was terrible, Ouch. but through that process, because um, I knew I was epileptic, but I also knew it wasn't it wasn't a fit because I, you know, you, kn- you know these things. But I knew I'd passed out. And anyway, long story short, they ran a bunch of tests and they found out that I had a heart condition. And what was really strange about that. I knew in high school something wasn't totally right, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And I remember we would do these activities like extracurricular activities And my, I never did well in physical education. And I think my teachers thought I was lazy. And I had this feeling that, um, but yeah, anyway, I had this feeling that something wasn't right. And my teachers thought I was being lazy. And I decided to listen to my body rather than listen to the teacher. So I would get C's and I was irritated, but I couldn't prove anything otherwise. So they have these tests done and I have very low blood pressure, which I've always known, but it's really low, like 93 over 56 normally. And then I find out that I have a heart murmur and I wanted so badly to go back to these teachers and be like, see, I told you I wasn't lazy. I had a heart condition. I had a heart condition the entire time. And I knew something wasn't right. And I knew I shouldn't overexert myself. And I think it's interesting how when you have problems, whatever those are, you end up becoming really attuned to what your body needs. And you, in a way, it's, I don't know, I guess you could say gift or intuition. I don't know, but it forces you to really think about the day to day a bit more than maybe somebody who who doesn't have those sorts of things. Um, and I think in some respects that can be a real strength. Frustrating, but a strength. But there are times when I feel like, you know, some when we go to like I go to like an outdoor boot camp or something, and I notice that a lot of the other women are um they doing half marathons and things and i and i'm always the last one and a big part of me wants to be like i have a heart condition and blah 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 because i feel like i have to explain away why i look lazy and i think that's my own insecurities whereas i think if somebody had a had a wheelchair and i'm not saying that one is better than the other but it would be self-explanatory Whereas I feel like I have to I have it's like unless I have a T-shirt that says I have A, B and C, people are going to come to these conclusions that are just not true.
1: Absolutely. And I hope uh, later we can talk about this as a part of the disease of social stigma. Mm, And how we really need to start having conversations around what is considered not normal yeah so the binaries we create about normal and anything that's a departure from our understanding of this normality becomes something to worry about reject or question or suspect and I think questions and I think conversations are critical starting from home with your parents family members and as you said teachers and Mm. for teachers to accept that everything doesn't have to be black and white. Every You could change your own received notions of what it means to be normal, to be usual, and to have a certain frame of what this normal looks like. And I, I'm happy to share a little more about what my daughter struggled through at school. Sure, I mean, feel how- free. Feel free to, if you want to talk about can that. Conclude with, with this. So you just mentioned how you struggled uh, in school or you had you were labeled as par- probably lazy. And that's something that I learned during this documentary that we made called The Butterfly Children in Singapore, which is available on YouTube, where my daughter, who was interviewed for a condition, shared that her condition, her physical condition, EB, didn't really impact her as much as or didn't cause her as much pain and grief as did the rejection and suspicion from her teachers and classmates. In particular, Mm -hmm. she talks about how her teachers constantly called her lazy or questioned the fact that she was taking the elevator rather than the stairs because she simply couldn't walk or she had very badly blistered feet and uh, she didn't want to walk. Given the climate here in Singapore where it's always hot around the year and humid, It it was very usual for her to get blisters after being in school for a day or two. So typically she would take either Wednesday or Thursday or, if she was lucky, then Friday off from school because her feet would blister by then. And then she would recuperate over the weekend, not stand on her feet, and then again back to school on Monday and the cycle would repeat itself. So while her teachers often accused her of lying because they said blisters are not hereditary, she couldn't possibly have inherited blisters. And that is, I mean, the common person would, of course, think that. But rather than give her the benefit of doubt or have a chat with me, they, they suspected this, you know, six, seven-year-old girl and uh, insisted that she run or do the other activities. Well, they didn't really insist that she do the activities, but they encouraged her and often reprimanded her from taking the elevator, et cetera. So it was this this desire to hide, and already she was struggling to fit in and be like everyone else and look like everyone else and do what everyone's doing, that she continued to push herself while managing the pain. Now, that doesn't mean that she was really the suffering child. That's not what I'm trying to communicate here. What I'm saying is whatever the level of her pain or discomfort, it was hers to decide and manage. And it was aggravated by the judgment and suspicion imposed by those who should have known better, who should have given her the benefit of doubt. So she's just an example of how we need to evaluate our own perceptions. And I hope this conversation with you, this podcast is going to make our listeners Reconsider what they think of as normal, what they, how they approach anyone who doesn't fit into that uh, neat picture, the frame of what normal is like, and how maybe we can give the benefit of doubt to anyone who we feel may be abusing the system or taking advantage. Maybe they are not. We don't know what they're going through, mm. so we can't help people who have these conditions or anyone, you know, anyone with a non-rare condition, what we can do is change society, change us, our immediate circles to help them to better fit into our world.
0: Mm. No, I think that that's really really good advice. And I was gonna say, um, if we could, maybe let's tap in a bit to um, this idea of stigma, uh, especially um, since you know the pandemic, a lot of people have um, been furloughed, um, they've had to reconsider their job opportunities or job careers, some are looking at startups. And one of the things that I think is really, and I know this from personal experience, I would like to talk about with you, is this idea of uncertainty when it comes to people having certain conditions, um, especially when filling out job application forms. And it's one of those things where there have been discussions in the past about how those with visible disabilities feel like they're not getting, being given a fair chance because people take one look at them and they just they, they come to these conclusions without giving them a, an opportunity to to prove their, their worth. Um, so one of the things I've noticed in job applications in the past is when people would say, do you have a disability? I say no because from my standpoint, I can function perfectly fine, thank you very much, and it's none of your business. But I also know that I'm in a privileged position where I can hide it to that extent, as opposed to somebody who has more of a visible illness. So I would be curious to know from your perspective, what the effects are of these sorts of questions and job applications and what it could have on disabled people in terms of how they might be viewed in the job market. And I'd also like to know whether you think having a condition uh, creates stigma and discrimination.
1: So your first question about how I think people with certain conditions should apply for jobs or how they should respond to certain questions in job applications. Well, I think to be very practical, the first thing is, if one is asked that question and we should, well, you know, they should, this question should not be in a job application really Agreed. because it just discriminates against people with any condition. But I think it's very important to, um, to admit that you have a condition simply because it may, you may be contravening the contract. You know, you could be uh, accused of misleading and therefore you might be denied your medical rights. Quite possibly. So, yeah. Yeah, it's very important to accept and acknowledge because if in the future you're not able to function in your job, you know, then you'll you'll feel a lot of pressure because you didn't admit. So I think and again, I don't have a condition, so it's um easy for me to say that, but if I was speaking for my daughter, then th- if I was speaking to my daughter, then I would say that that it's important to own your condition to uh, to admit it in a job interview. And any position which you feel you're suitable for, but which discriminates against you for your condition really is probably not the best match for you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: And the second part of your question was this whole notion of stigma. I think it's really difficult to start having a conversation with institutions. at, uh, if you're applying for a position, but um, these conversations need to begin at home. Mm-hmm. I see that especially within certain cultures like the Asian cultures, uh, we have this notion of face and how we need to preserve face. So it it is this whole notion of a facade or giving an appearance of normality, of... Um, a compromise if you have revealed certain personal issues. So you've lost face. This is a very important cultural notion in this part of our world. So often people don't admit publicly that they have a condition. But that also means that their friends, their relatives don't know about this. So it was very difficult, actually, to get my own family to start having that conversation. But thankfully, they saw the value of the work we do, I do, uh, particularly around rare conditions. And uh, they were happy to join me and contribute in having that conversation. If you watch that documentary, Butterfly Children of Singapore, you'll see how you know my husband talks about this is the first time he's ever spoken about it. So mm. that should tell you that um, these conversations really need to start with first accepting within the family And then within your immediate circles that you have a condition, it's not something to be ashamed of. It is something that you want people to understand, not because you want some kind of leeway for yourself, but because you simply want to change the world one step at a time. Mm, It sounds grand, but it's absolutely true. And I believe in this implicitly that we need to start changing people's minds one person at a time. And when we do that, hopefully even at the institutional level, I believe mature institutions have the capacity to initiate these conversations in workplaces. Maybe if not around your condition, then you can talk about another condition. Like you, we had all this huge, um, enormous popularity of the ice bucket challenge around ALS. Mm-hmm. And if we can start having these conversations that... Uh, Um, that creates certain awareness around these conditions, then why not expand that conversation and have a different condition once in a while, regularly, ongoing conversations about acceptance, about inclusion, diversity. And diversity doesn't mean simply skin color or ethnicity, but also people with different abilities and different conditions and different challenges.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a really, uh, really good point. Um, And especially, I think uh, one of the things we talked about in the past is people's responses to this diversity when it comes to having certain conditions and how you and I had both had issues with um, a concept called a savior complex Mm -hmm. and the concerns that we had with those who do have this savior complex. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners what you mean by this expression and how it can be problematic?
1: Well, I think savior complex, as I understand it, is the desire to step in and uh, do something to help the person who is perceived of as disabled. For example, if you see somebody in a wheelchair or walking with a cane, then you might want to help them cross the road or open the elevator door or you know, help them up a ramp, etc. But um, while these intentions are really driven by the best intention, you know, your, your actions are driven by the best intentions, they're not necessarily the best for the person who you're trying to help. Um, From my understanding, people with these conditions, all conditions, rare and non-rare, really value their dignity and their independence. Mm. My daughter is fiercely independent. She acknowledges her, her challenges and wants to have the dignity of managing it on her own. She doesn't want us to add on another level of disability, by treating her as someone who is helpless. So it's really important to respect people's boundaries, respect people's wishes, and uh, rather than rush to their help, wait to be asked. So when I talk to people with, um, I'm going to use the word disability here because the people I'm thinking of currently are those who are in wheelchairs or who walk with um, a cane and a guide dog. These people that I know tell me if we need help, we'll ask you. Mm. So don't try to save us. Treat us just like you. You wouldn't, you wouldn't rush to help me across the street, would you? If you see me at a, at a pedestrian crossing. So why help someone who hasn't sought your help?
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's almost like if they say no, thank you. It's like they're being ungrateful. And then it's like absolutely. a double whammy. It's like, it's not, Absolutely. I'm not being ungrateful, but I'm good. <laughs>
1: yes, yes, absolutely. So why put them in a position to say that to you? Mm. Maybe yeah. just smile at them, you know, smile at a person and uh, let them know, make eye contact. But yeah. I don't think it's right to be curious or ask them what the why they're in a wheelchair or what their condition is. Just simply don't stare make eye contact if you need to, smile if you meet their gaze and continue about your business. And if they need help, they'll ask you. Yeah, I think that that's really
0: good. And I think it takes a situation that could potentially become very uncomfortable and it makes it quickly uncomfortable. You know, Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And you're doing them a disservice because you're making them feel like they are dependent, like they need your help, like they're not like you.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is true. That is very true. Yeah, I will say, though, um, and this is a bit sneaky, but you know how when when you're pregnant and you can kind of use it as an excuse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not yeah. going to lie. There have been a couple times where I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I can't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I accept that. I've, I've been in that situation. I've enjoyed the, you know, the the seat in on the train or in in the bus. But that is uh, something that you probably pamper yourself with. You sort of allow yourself to be indulged because yeah. it's a temporary situation, right? It's a phase. For like 15 you're not minutes. Used to it. <laughs> yeah. But, but, I mean, what I mean is a pregnancy, right? It's a, yeah. It's a phase in your life. You're not used to that kind of attention and being treated as special and, you know, being fussed over. Um, So it's okay, you know, if you accept that. It's easier, I think, for someone like me to accept it because it's just a phase and everyone's treating you as special and taking care of you and you permit yourself to accept it. But I think if it was permanent, then I might have a different perspective on that.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Um, I was gonna ask you before we sort of wrap this up, what are some takeaway messages that you have for our listeners and viewers? Oh, we already kind of got around to this um, in terms of how to react to life-threatening conditions. Um, but more to the point, um, I was gonna say, how how would you advise people, if maybe we could change this question slightly, how would you advise people um, to kind of deal with change if they ever find themselves in a situation where maybe they might get a condition themselves or they might find that they have a close relative that has a condition? How would you advise them to sort of approach the process if faced with that situation?
1: Thanks, Anne. That's a great question. I'm afraid I may not have a the answer for this because I hesitate to speak on behalf of those um who have a condition or who might acquire one. But I can say from my experience of working with individuals and communities, groups of patients and families living with rare conditions, that it's really, really important and very useful to find a community. Mm. Even if you are depressed, which is very natural when you have a condition, Uh, A lot of the people I work with are completely housebound. They're not able to get out of the house and meet people, um, et cetera. And uh, they're also very aware that their condition makes them look visibly um, really disabled with some some of the kinds of EBs that we have, the dystrophic and junctional kinds. People have wounds on their skin which are visible and um, People tend to then cloister themselves behind doors and they don't like to reveal these disabilities. I know I'm talking about visible skin disabilities, but then there are many who have other conditions that uh, may be invisible, but they still do suffer from them. Now, these people are already struggling psychologically, physically, socially, but it really helps if you connect with a community of people who share similar challenges. I've seen this again and again. Um, most people who have rare conditions that I mean have never met someone else with the same condition. So I'm... I, yeah, I was going to say this is the same
0: for orphan conditions where it's so rare that you don't even know there's anybody else on the planet that has absolutely. what you have.
1: Absolutely. So often diseases or often conditions, by the very phrase, are conditions that have been orphaned because there aren't too many pharmaceutical companies who invest um, in research to find cures, medication for these conditions because there's simply no market, if I may put it that way. The people who might use these products are so few that companies don't think it's worth their while to invest in these products. Similarly, there is often not enough clinical experience and expertise around these conditions. Um, governments, most governments in the Asia-Pacific, yes, I can say that with great confidence, most countries in the Asia-Pacific don't have an orphan disease policy or a rare disease policy. So patients and families with rare conditions are excluded from health care plans, national and regional healthcare plans. So they have to pay out of pocket for their conditions. Of course, insurance companies exclude those born with congenital disorders, people who are born with certain conditions. So you can see that they are literally orphaned and have no support system. The only support I think that most people can access are communities, people like themselves. So find another person either through social media or thankfully now we have such a huge um, resource in the internet, you can simply Google your condition plus support plus community, those kind of words, or organization, and there's a high likelihood you'll find someone, something. So they can also reach out to regional organizations like ours, which is the Asia-Pacific Rare Disease Alliance. We can help connect them with the condition organization in their country or their region. They can reach out to Rare Diseases International, or even in Europe, they can reach out to the European Organization of Rare Diseases, Eurodis. So these are some great organizations doing phenomenal work in connecting people and lobbying for um, rare disease policies globally and regionally. So yes, first of all, find a community, a support yeah. structure.
0: Wonderful. And I was going to say before we close, how can our listeners get involved in the charities we talked about today?
1: Um, This is a really valuable question for me because the more people step up to help, the better our world is going to be. You can simply, the easiest way is to make a donation to a rare disease organization. Of your choice in your in your part of the world, wherever you may be, but I think a m- little more meaningful way would be to first educate yourself on some of the rare conditions. You can look at any um, website from Rare Diseases International, Eurodis, Epado, or specific um, conditions. You can read up a little bit about them. You can find out what the symptoms are, how it affects people, and then see what can you do to create awareness. For example, if you work in a school, if you're studying in a school or work in an institution or even in, in your office, you can create, you can have a little conversation around. You can, if you, if you are in an academic institution, let's say you're a student in a school or university or teacher in one of them, or even if you work in a regular office, Initiate a conversation around a rare disease. It could be a pantry conversation. It could be a more focused and regular conversation around a particular condition. Um, Sensitize people about the challenges. If possible, reach out to an organization. Invite them to your workplace or, you know, um, a community group and get them to share their challenges. Ask them how you can support them. Because you don't want people to feel that you are pitting them. You want people to know that you're genuinely trying to help. So instead of assuming, reach out, ask them, what can you do? Can you volunteer your time? Can you raise awareness? Can you create, um, can you do fundraising for them? Mm. Can you lobby with your lawmakers on getting equity, healthcare equity for people with rare conditions. And this doesn't apply just to people with rare conditions. It applies to anyone who's not getting the complete support that any individual in uh, um, humane society deserves.
0: Mm. No, I think that that's, um, that's key. Uh, I think education, I think is something that's quite undervalued, you know? I mean, I think, um, you know, I can remember I had a student years ago whose parents were deaf. I didn't speak American Sign Language, but I remember thinking, I, I think I got a dictionary that had like a, you know, had like a few signs. And then even it was just like, thank you. Okay. You know, it was just trying something that was better than nothing. And, and then, you know, in a way, I didn't want to be disrespectful to the parents, but to turn to the student and say, do you mind telling your dad X? hoping that she actually told them X. But, you know, not wanting to make a big deal out of it, but also acknowledging that this is the situation we're in and I just want to make sure that it gets said in a way that's appropriate, you know. So um, I think that's really I think that's really helpful. Um, I yes. think people undervalue how just doing a bit of homework can make a world of difference and it can make you more aware. Right.
1: Um, Absolutely. And um, the aware, awareness is really the bedrock of change. Becoming aware of your own, perhaps unacknowledged, un, um, you know, your, you, you may not be aware that you hold certain biases and prejudices. So first, become aware of how you feel about it. And then be brave enough to initiate a conversation. And especially as academics, you know, we often come across students who don't quite fit the norm. Mm. And we get uncomfortable about how to deal with them. And I often see colleagues simply ignoring that because they don't know how to deal with it. So I understand that one usually gets uncomfortable when there is something that we can't deal with, we tend to you know, leave that person out or leave that issue aside. But perhaps it might be useful to simply write an email to that person and say, if you need to talk, I'm here.
0: Yeah. And even if, if they say anything, no, it's just the fact that you you reached out.
1: Offered, absolutely. If you if there's anything I can do to help, let me know. You know, these are very strong gestures. These are very, very important conversations. It's really important for us to reach out and let people know that we are there. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Well, I have to thank you so much. For this talk. And uh, with that, that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. Again, thank you, Ritu, for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Additional links to today's topic will be available in the show notes. And if you have any thoughts on today's show, feel free to leave a comment or write us directly. We love hearing from you. In the meantime, we'd like to showcase our monthly Coffee and Cocktails winner, where we pick out of a hat a Coffee and Cocktails follower from our social media platforms to win a piece of very exciting merchandise. And the winner this month is Mary Spicer. Please feel free to reach out to us to get your prize. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.